everyone wants care specifically tailored to them. And that's the promise of personalized medicine. There's technologies like genomic sequencing, bioinformatics, gene editing, and AI that are making personalized medicine possible, but we're really still in the early phase. So what is the potential of personalized medicine and how soon will we see the results? Welcome to Care Talk, America's home for incisive debate about healthcare business and policy. I'm David Williams, president of Health Business Group. And I'm John Driscoll, the president of Walgreens Health. Join the ever-growing Care Talk community on LinkedIn, where you can dig deep into healthcare business and policy topics, access Care Talk content, and interact with the host. Now, we don't really have a personalized version of it yet, but John, maybe that'll be for next time. David, let's start with what is all the buzz about personalized medicine? What is it? And is it in any way relevant to patients and families today? It is relevant. Let me say what it is. So it's really about tailoring medical treatments to the individual characteristics, conditions, and preferences. And the contrast is we're going from the one-size-fits-all medicine to personalized approaches. And the one-size-fits-all is because there'll be a study and it will say, okay, blood pressure should be this, or this is how you treat this illness. And it's based on real data and real studies, but it tends to sort of give you the average result. And that's what you're comparing. So Personalized medicine is getting down to the specifics uh, for you as an individual, your treatment decisions, and there's a lot of technologies that are underlying it. Yeah, I think the context here, though, is important from the Watson and Crick identification of the interlinking of DNA and RNA and, and identifying what was hopefully almost a, a, a map or a topography of biology. There's been this promise from the 50s and 60s that, gosh, if we could really understand in a, almost a mechanistic way how different genes express, which are d- deeply unique, and we currently care for both through drugs and, and, and general therapy, broad categories of people, we could unlock some secrets of health. We map the genome. And so there's a genomic atlas, if you will, so that we got that mapping correctly. But yeah, which is a big deal, John. And that took 13 years and it finished 20 years ago. And I think people thought, okay, now we have everything, but it shows just the amount of complexity now to interpret that map once we have found the map. And, but then we found that it isn't the, just the genes themselves and how they interact, but there's epigenetics. And then the epigenetics, which is, you know, how they're expressing then we realize that there's a level of complexity around proteins. And so to some degree, we're sort of starting with the, the, the end view of personalized starts with, okay, one map, then you get one more level deeper and one more level deeper and one more level deeper. And at each level, it feels like people have promised that personalized medicine is going to transform care primarily in, in, on the biopharmaceutical side where we can actually target therapies to specific diseases. We should get into that. But I think to be fair, David, like a lot of early stage technologies that have grand promise, that the grand promises were made early before we actually could make great progress. And maybe we could talk a little bit about kind of how it's being applied today and or misapplied so that people can kind of put it in a personalized medicine in a more personal context. Exactly. That's fair, John. So I, you know, I, I detect a little bit in your comments the sense that, hey, the more questions we answer, the, the more questions we ask. And that is true to a certain extent. But 
let's say there was the map and maybe, you know, in order to sell the idea of the human genome project, uh, you needed to say it's going to do all these great things. Otherwise, you're not going to raise all the money for it. So that's there. Uh, and maybe that's just a little bit into the future. There is this thing called the All of Us Research Program, which is actually the attempt to get a million individuals across the country and various, you know, diverse uh, demographies uh, in order to understand what the, what all this genetic uh, information means. And they have a report that just came out and they've identified more than 275 million previously unreported genetic variations. And there's about 4 million of those that have potential health consequences. So on the one hand, we're going deeper and deeper into asking the questions. On the other hand, I know you're getting to the point about like business meeting. Let me give a couple of examples where there is actually specific benefits that are being held now. So one is certain uh, mutations, BRCA1 and BRCA2, are well known uh, that lead, you know, like very directly, very high chance to have that you can get breast cancer or ovarian cancer. And so, although it's not something that people want to do, um, you know, the people have mastectomies and uh, they have the ovaries and bloating uh, tubes removed to prevent cancers. That's actually happening. Gene editing is happening for this. I mean, just, uh, just to be clear, that is a genetic polymorphism, a genetic difference that you can identify through a test. And I think it's like one out of three or one out of four women will have some form of breast cancer in their lives. So it's a very common form of cancer for women. And the specific cancers related to that genetic variation can be targeted with either direct therapy or surgery and save lives. So that's a great example of where by providing the map, we've identified the target. The target is tied to illness and we've actually got a solution, surgery and, and drugs to, to deal with what would otherwise be an incredibly lethal form of cancer. That's right. And that isn't the only example. So there's, we have CRISPR, you might have hear, heard about, which is about gene editing. So like directly editing a gene. Uh, and for sickle cell disease, uh, there's actually well, let's, let's, treatment let's, for let's, that. If we could back up a second, David, because I do think that you know, when you think about it, I remember uh, your buddy Bill Clinton was on the on the on the on the White House lawn with Craig Ventner and talking about the yeah. private sector. Doctor Craig Ventner, we mapped the genome in, in the '90s, and now we're going to unlock all of these diseases. Well, the reality is that the unlocking has taken a long time, but now we're getting to the point where we can not only unlock and identify BRCA one, BRCA two specific genetic variations that lead to treatment, but CRISPR is actually uh, a software-like technology that allows us, once we understand what that genetic polymorphism or difference is, that we could potentially use the, that technology and manipulate people's biology so that they could heal themselves. And these, these are called targeted therapies, and they're, they're, they're remarkable. And CRISPR is probably as an acceleration of those targeted therapies because it, we literally can theoretically manipulate people's biology directly to save lives. So we get, you know, and yes, to save lives, but potentially to do other things too, right? Which is where some of the concerns come in. So if you think about CRISPR and gene editing for something like, you know, sickle cell disease, where you can make an edit and essentially cure, uh, at least for certain people, sickle cell, that's great. That's kind of like a cell checker, right? You go and say, oh, there's a typo. I'm going to fix that. Now, the thing with gene editing, you might also just type a whole new sentence, and that may lead us into different uh, different directions. A couple of other examples. So uh, CAR-T, which is a type of immunotherapy, uh, where you actually genetically engineer the T cells of the patients, and that can be used essentially to train individual cells to attack certain cancers. 
leukemia and lymphoma uh, in particular. And then beyond uh, some of those, some things that are purely on the software side, there's an example of uh, hacking the uh, continuous uh, glucose monitor in order to allow personalized treatment and adjustment for, for insulin. And that's actually uh, a grassroots open source project that was done. So there are real examples, John. Let's, let's, let's get to that one later. But I, I just really want, I mean, these are, um, you know, I think it goes back to that, that, what I'm reminded of is the Bill Gates quote that we tend to overestimate initially the impact of technology in the next two years and underestimate the impact in 10. CRISPR and targeted immunotherapies literally permit the, the manipulation of biology for a, to create a potentially better outcome. There are, there are, the sickle cell disease disproportionately hits people of color and it, and it is genetic and it is a genetic variation that we can potentially reverse. Targeted immunotherapies where we actually use the equivalent of bio, biological weapons to attack different forms of cancer uh, skin cancer would be another one. The CAR T's are, you know, leveraging T cells, which are these incredibly powerful pluripotential uh, cells in the body, to overwhelm, if you will, the cancer and accelerate in, in almost a superpower-like way, dealing with inpatient bodies. So, twenty or thirty years in, after we've talked about the map, we're actually finding ways for delivery vehicles for curative therapy. The risk here, the reason why the FDA has been slow to approve this stuff is if you get it wrong, you can kill people because you're literally yeah. manipulating their biology. So initially, a lot, of the, a lot of the research was done on people who were desperately ill and near death anyways. And, and there have been cases for older people to babies where these targeted biological therapies based on personalized medicine or leveraging the insights we have from your personal DNA, your personal biological makeup to create curative therapies. But David, is, it sounds like you know the, the, what would have been thought of as science fiction 20 or 30 years ago, and we're going to cure everybody. Like, what, what could possibly go wrong here? Yeah. Well, John, before we think about what could go wrong, because I think that's, you know, there's a lot that could go wrong, but we're talking about, okay, the great promise into the future and your point about things being overestimated in the near term and then underestimated in the long term. One of the reasons for that is that these technologies don't exist in a vacuum. And when multiple things come together, they should be combined in new ways. One way to think about that is maybe with something like a smartphone, right? So it's just a phone, but if you combine the ability to make phone calls with the ability to track uh, location and then to have video and to have computer processing all in one place, now you can do all sorts of things completely uh, newly invented, like ride sharing that never would have been just done with a, with a phone, but you actually need all of those different components uh, to come together. Think about that similarly as it relates to personalized medicine. So there's an example here that's, that's just starting out called a, a concept of a virtual twin. So psychiatric uh, disorders have been the hardest, some of the hardest things to actually understand and to cure. But if you combine the possibility of you know, the genome mapping the analysis with big data and AI, and then the possibility of doing simulation, you can actually create essentially computerized version that's a match when somebody's brain and you can do simulations there in a way that you could never do ethically with an individual person. And you can actually design our therapies for that. So those sort of things, putting different technologies together uh, that we're going to see the big impact, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. I think we should approach the personalized medicine, the broadest aspect of the categories 
tie to, or the most exciting ones are the ones that tie to biology and biopharmaceuticals. But when you step back and you realize that we use very generalized rules in general for dosing or prescription or for physical therapy, when realizing that everybody's a little bit different, you start to step back and say, like, you know, my, my wife's involved in a personalized food program where she's leveraging diet, food, and behavior change to help people really change the arc of their health. But they start with a really tight assessment on how and why and where do people eat right now? What is their cultural tradition? How do they think about food? What do they use it for entertainment? Is it, is it, is it income restricted? And by really understanding why people eat the way they eat, particularly those who are suffering from diet sensitive chronic disease, um, you can't just tell people to eat more salad. That doesn't work. You need to go dial back to their personal home, family, culture, neighborhood access traditions and kind of what they use food for. And that actually, they've had some incredible results without mapping anybody's genome or trying to understand how their proteins express. And I think in mental health, very similarly, one of the things that's interesting is the ability to use big data tools, which is to say we got access to lots more data. We can leverage much more powerful compute and perhaps some artificial intelligence to actually look at, okay, David, how do I help you manage your anxiety disorder? Because you're different than your brothers. Thanks for your health, John. And your, your anxiety starts tied to your care talk broadcast. But doing, doing what I can, again, family, culture, background is, requires a lot more data. It, it's nothing to do with biology, but I think that would help my therapist figure out my challenges. Uh, I think it's really thinking about leveraging all of these technology tools to make sure that the general recommendations are personalized to my specific problems, challenges, and opportunities. But I do think we're at the dawn of a different age, and it's this convergence of biological tools, biological data and insights, and big compute. Let me uh, close out by following up on your your piece about the broader person and then also new technologies and new frontiers. So uh, if, if you read the sociology journals, which I generally don't, but I did in preparation for this and understand what's the, what's the critique of personalized medicine. So the concern is that it leads to kind of they call biological reductionism person. Like, hey, everything will huh? be just taken down to your genes and we're just going to engineer you and personalize it. You know, you lose all the context that you're describing. So that's on the one hand. So we need to bring that balance back. On the other hand, uh, you know, once we go beyond the genome, then there's the microbiome. Which is all what uh, lives in your in your gut, and it's much more complicated, um, actually, than the, yes. the than the genome, but has this profound implications. And you do see companies um, that are actually combining a microbiome and AI to understand what that means on a personalized basis. So, more to come, John. Is what I would say. I am less interested in exploring your gut and more in the general c- categories here, David. Sorry. I'm all right. Just, so you're interested in my? Uh, I'm losing track here. You're interested in my my gut DOA and in my brain chemistry. In any case, that's it for yet another episode of Cure Talk. We've been talking today about personalized medicine. I'm David Williams, president of Health Business Group. And I'm John Driscoll, the president of Walgreens Health. If you like what you heard or you didn't, please subscribe on your favorite service and leave us a review if you have a chance. 